Caroline, you know, is a fundamental part of the medical anthropology team here. Um, this piece of work goes back to something that was started now a good two years ago. Three. Three years yeah. ago now. Um, and the question of can you predict obesity? Anyway, I'm very pleased that Caroline has gotten back to, to, to this question and actually not just reproduced the results we produced last time, but actually strengthened them. So, Caroline. Thank you, Stanley. Um, I'm really pleased to be able to kick off this term's seminars because as many of the old veterans in the room know, I've either uh, convened or chaired or otherwise attended the vast majority of obesity seminars, but this is the first one that I've actually given. So um, it's great to finally be, um, as, as you say, Stanley, kind of, it feels like coming full circle. Um, this is a project that had its beginnings um, pretty close to the beginning of the obesity unit. So the unit was set up in 2007 with some seed funding from the John Fell Fund. And it was basically inspired by um, some of the colleagues within Oxford who were taking part in the Foresight Tackling Obesity Project, which I'm going to mention, and I'm sure some of you saw the map and groaned. Of course, we're going to be coming back to the Foresight Project, um, so I'll just be touching on that briefly. Um, but the obesity units in that first year, we were really trying to identify the gaps. What could an interdisciplinary approach towards obesity identify? Uh, what could we do research-wise? What could social sciences approach towards obesity tell us that wasn't already in the existing literature? So in that first year, Stanley and I had many, many meetings, uh, did lots of brainstorming, put together funding applications. So we were thinking about um, lots of new projects. This is one of many projects that we started to develop that year. And we presented some preliminary results just to test the feasibility of the idea at the Nutrition Society meeting in summer of 2008. Uh, but the results that we presented there were very preliminary, um, based on our first pass at a model for predicting future obesity. The model has changed quite considerably. Um, the, the length of time that we're examining the model has changed quite considerably. So this is the first presentation of the new model that hopefully is um, a lot more rigorous. We know a bit more what we're doing with it since that first presentation back in 2008. Um, so what do we know about obesity? Well, most of you in this room are going to be very familiar with the general context, which is that we know that across the world, obesity prevalence rates have been going up everywhere and with unprecedented speed for the last 30 years. We also know, and this interests us, particularly all the anthropologists and human sciences in the room, um, we know that this is no longer just an affliction of the affluent. This isn't a developed world problem. This isn't an American problem or a British problem. This is a global problem. Uh, some of the fastest rates of increase of obesity prevalence are happening in places like the Pacific Islands, the Middle East, Central and Southern America. So this is a global problem. We all know about it. Everybody's scrambling to try and make sense of why we're seeing this global rise across the last 30 years. So a couple of things that we know that are going to inform the approach that I'm going to present today. We know that there is a life course element to body size. We know that body size tends to track across the life course. So for instance, people who are small as children tend to, tend to stay small as adults, and conversely, larger children tend to become larger adults. We also know that for anyone across the life course, it is very difficult to lose weight. So we have a general trend towards gaining weight across most of our childhood and adult lives. And I'll show you uh, some evidence of that to get a picture of that in just a second. Um, also, the climate within this country is that uh, I'm sure you can't escape most days without seeing an obesity-related story in the media. Everybody's trying to relate uh, obesity to everything. And a lot of this is centered on um, a real, I'd like to call it moral outrage at 
the, uh, particularly the increases of childhood obesity rates in this country across the last 15 to 20 years. So a lot of the, the, see, the things that you see covered are um, child or family-focused interventions, such as the MEND program, social marketing campaigns like Change for Life that came out of the government uh, cross-disciplinary task force on obesity, um, and new programs such as the National Child Measurement Program that are trying to more rigorously capture anthropometric data, um, in this case for children who are as they are entering school or in year six. Um, so we've seen all this buzz of activity around obesity research trying to make sense of what's gone on in the last 30 years. So just to give you a visual representation of that life course element of obesity, this is from some French data published in 1991. So um, although they're a bit difficult to see, um, not so concerned with the actual numbers on the BMI scale, although they are notably lower in France than for most other industrial countries. But within the UK as well, we see we would expect a similar sort of trajectory for most people across the life course. So this is representing centiles. As I mentioned, if you tend to start small in earlier life, so this is age from zero up to 90, if you tend to start on one of the smaller centiles, barring any kind of significant life event, such as a major illness, um, some significant event that might cause a dramatic weight loss or gain, most people tend to follow roughly along one of these centile lines. So if you start out along the lower end, um, you tend to stay that way into adulthood and also on the higher end. But for everyone, we start out relatively fat when we're born, we go through a period of decreasing BMI, and we hit this, um, this valley here, which has been termed the adiposity rebound. And from that point, around about age four to six, we start gaining in BMI up across the life course, up until around about 65 or 70 years old, where most people then start to lose some weight, and that's mostly due to loss of muscle mass. So this is the, the shape that we expect for, for most people in terms of BMI across their life course. Uh, when we're talking about trying to make comparisons um, for relative overweight or obesity in childhood versus adulthood, just a word of caution, of course, because we have this change in BMI across the life course, we can't use the BMI cutoffs of 25 and 30 that we use for adults to talk about children being overweight and obese. So when I'm talking about overweight or obesity, um, in the childhood years, later in this presentation, I'm using the international cutoffs published by Tim Cole and colleagues in 2000. So that's basically um, along, there's a centile line that corresponds to a BMI of 25 or 30 at age 18, and uh, what these numbers, what these cutoff BMIs are at each age have been published, so those cutoffs are being used to assess uh, overweight and obesity for childhood years. Okay, so what's the current picture in England? Well, we know that since 1980, obesity prevalence has gone up across the board. Um, this is a reproduction of uh, some data published by Chin and Rona in 2001. Um, take a look at the health survey for England data, which has been published since 1993. Some of the trends that you'll see in there, um, as of the health survey for England 2008 data, roughly 25% of the adult population is obese, so a, measure, a BMI measure of 30 or higher. The highest prevalence of that, around 33% for both men and women, is actually in the 65 to 74-year-old age group. So I want to signal that because it's a little bit at odds with all of this um, excitement that we have about thinking about childhood obesity. The biggest obesity prevalence rates are actually later in the life course. 
Um, if you look at the data, the Health Survey of England data between 1998 and 2008, every adult birth cohort increased in their obesity prevalence. And also, since 1993, between 1993 and 2008, the prevalence of obesity went up among every age group, especially around the 45 to 54-year-old age groups for men and women. So when we see these big scary numbers that are published about a quarter of Britain is obese, keep in mind that a lot of that is in the older, the mid to older age groups. Um, so when we're talking about predicting obesity, we've got much higher obesity prevalence in those older age groups than the equivalent childhood obesity prevalence rates would suggest. So something's going on. We know that people tend to get fatter across their life course, but the levels of obesity in childhood for the group that is now hitting the 45 plus age group, their obesity prevalence was not nearly that high when they were younger. So is there any way that we can tease out who among even those who are of normal health weight when they're in their childhood, is there any way that we can predict who might be at increased risks of increased body size later in life? This is our task. This is what we're trying to do with this model. Um, in terms of why this is happening, I'm sure many of you here have um, heard a lot of these uh, potential explanations. The point is, we know that we have cheap, high energy dense food. We know that our working patterns and our activity patterns have changed. We know that the environment's changed, that we have suburban sprawl, that we're commuting longer distances. All of these things have been happening in that 30 year window. So the trouble is that if we try to analyze the, um, the weight of any one of those factors in terms of predicting longer term obesity outcomes, any one of those factors by itself doesn't tell us very much. They're all risk factors. What seems to be coming together is a lot of things at the same time. So this suggests to us that we need to think about a more ecological approach, taking in multiple factors of risk into a single model. So what's our inspiration for trying to think about the very complicated picture of obesity. Again, I think most of the people in this room will have seen this map plenty of times before. This is the Foresight Obesity System map, which for those who aren't familiar with it, this was one of the outputs of a two-year project on, um, by the government think tank Foresight on tackling obesity. A few people in this room took part in that project. It brought together 200 leading researchers in the UK to basically assess the current state of research, of obesity research in the UK, and try to figure out, okay, what exactly do we know? How much do we know? How much can we predict about the future burden of obesity in this country? And can we make any kind of sense about all of these things that seem to be contributing to the rise in obesity rates across the population? So this map is trying to capture the many, many factors that all play a role that feed into our central energy balance that tends us towards obesity. There are 108 factors in this model. Um, most of the story that came out of the release of this map is it's complicated, but um, most of us weren't really sure what we were going to do with the map other than to say obesity is a very complicated issue that we need to think about from multiple angles. Uh, I know that this version is unreadable. If you want to have a closer look at what's in the map, the big version is there on the table. And in terms of how it's organized, I'll pass this one around as well. Uh, the map broadly is taking into um, different clusters of factors. So some of these are concerned with human physiology. This is the cluster down here. Uh, over to the right, you have factors that are to do with uh, physical activity, and the ones 
closer to the, the center are individual physical activities, and some of the ones on the outside are wider physical activity drivers, so things like the social depreciation of labor and reliance on labor-saving device, so environmental changes that have affected our physical activity. On the other side of the map, we have um, factors affecting food consumption and production, so things like people not knowing how to cook as well, not having as much time, changes in the economy and the type of policy that drives us towards producing more and more for less and less. And then the factors up here at the top are the social and cultural and psychological factors. So around here on that yellow dot, there's a key factor called psychological ambivalence, which is basically telling us that we know a lot about what we should do and the kinds of things that we should do towards um, healthy lifestyle, but we've got all of these other factors that mean that we don't necessarily do what we know that we should do. And then way out in the, uh, the top left there are the, the general social cultural factors, things like media consumption, education, uh, women in the workforce, some of these wider social changes. So this map is trying to take into account the vast complexity of obesity, but beyond saying it's, what, it's complex, what do we do with it? Well, this was um, part of our inspiration in, the, in the, the work that I'm presenting here is trying to say, is there some way that we can operationalize this map? Can we glean something out of the map that we can actually test, that we can actually collect data on and tell us um, if there's any way to predict obesity outcomes? So to simplify things down a little bit, um, we looked at a cluster of factors that were identified by the Foresight Group as um, potential variables that could affect childhood obesity and that might be policy levers for preventing childhood obesity. So if you look at the range of, of these factors, um, over here on the right in the color coding, those are, if you look on the map before, similarly color coded key variables. So the degree of primary appetite control, that's mainly influenced by all the biology, the physiology. Uh, physical activity encompasses some of those individual and general social uh, factors that feed into physical activity levels, and also we have psychological ambivalence that comes from the picture, for instance, how we respond to physical education. So going from 108 factors down to about 20 to think about early life interventions, and we were looking at this cluster and thinking, well, a 20 factor model is really pretty complicated. Um, let's take a closer look at these factors. Is there anything about them that can make them a little easier to manage? And which ones are ones that we can actually measure? And which ones are age appropriate for interventions at different stages of the life? So in looking at this cluster of 20, um, we thought, well, there seems to be broadly two kinds of factors here. There are some things, such as appropriateness of embryonic and fetal growth, appropriateness of maternal body composition, genetic or epigenetic predisposition, from the moment you're born, there is nothing you can do about those. Those are things that are in your past, they're part of your individual growth and development history, but those are not factors that we can directly control and directly intervene with, um, say, at the point of entering school, when we might be assessing children on the National Child Measurement Program. So those are factors that we can't change at the moment. But there are a lot of factors within this cluster that potentially we can influence, either through education, through interventions, um, so things like the learned activity patterns in early childhood, of course those are going to be affected by the kinds of activities that are available in schools, the kinds of activities that are available in recreational spaces, um, 
degree of innate activity of childhood is referring something to something that's more than just recreational activity. It's for the social anthropologists in the room, it's the habitus, it's the habitual level of activity. Um, is a child um, usually relatively active, and that's in recreational activities and just everyday activities like going to and from school. So two kinds of variables, um, things that we can change, things that we probably can't. And we've labeled these as condi conditioning factors on the one hand, so those are the things that at least for now, we can't do very much about. So I already mentioned some of these things like a genetic predisposition. We're still trying to identify um, if there is such a genetic predisposition. So we're still a long way away from being able to actually manipulate it. Um, things like adipocyte metabolism, we can observe it, but there's not much we can do to manipulate it at the time. Um, any life events that are in the past, such as maternal growth during pregnancy, fetal growth, um, and also, I've put social cultural values surrounding eating and activity in this list because although, in principle, they should change, um, I've put them under conditioning factors because at the moment they, uh, they take a long time to change and they change unpredictably. So these are the, the cluster of factors that we say, you know, we can measure them, perhaps identify if someone has experienced some of these factors that might put them at increased risk, but we can't really do much about them. On the other hand, we've got our intervention factors that we can potentially change. So at any stage of life, we can affect the nutritional quality of food and drink. Um, the children's control of diet uh, is not about self-control of eating. It's about the, um, the influence that children have within their families. So this can be influenced by things like the MEND and Change for Life programs that are encouraging family involvement. Um, things like learn activity patterns, degree of physical education, degree of innate and recreational activity level, all are going to be influenced by the home environment, the school environment, the wider neighborhood. So these are all things that are uh, potentially amenable to, to change, but something to take note here is that they are going to be time specific. So early learned activity patterns in childhood, of course, still changeable at the point we are entering school. But once you're at my stage, it becomes a conditioning factor. Uh, long gone, can't do anything about it. So when we're trying to think about an obesity prediction model, that's one thing that we felt we need to be very careful about. We need to think about what is an appropriate age where we would build such a model, and depending on the age, what kind of factors are we going to put in the model, some of which should reflect past risk, and some that reflect present risk that could be changed. So looking back at that variable cluster, the ones in red are the ones that I've labeled as the conditioning factors. For instance, we were developing a model for obesity prediction for children as they were entering school. So most of those in the red are concerned with very early life growth and development, early life nutrition, um, something like breastfeeding. It's amenable to intervention if you're dealing with pregnant women or with newborn infants, but not for children at school entry. But most of the ones on the bottom half of the page are still in the green, so those are our intervention factors. Still a lot of factors. Um, which of those are we going to choose to try and um, model some kind of future obesity risk? It's still a pretty complicated picture, so do we have um, anything that we can draw on for inspiration to try and simplify a fairly complicated phenomenon? Uh, fortunately, we do. On the other end of nutritional status, we have the Waterloo classification system for malnutrition. And this is something that um, is a very practical tool uh, based on 
a two-way matrix here, a height for age and a weight for height measure. And this matrix basically classifies um, children at different points in the matrix as either normal or wasted or stunted or stunted and wasted. So stunting is generally going to be a reflection of longer term um, nutritional insults, whereas wasting, just a small body size, is going to reflect more of the short-term nutritional deficiencies. And then someone who is showing signs of both, of course, is at very high risk for um, lots of outcomes of malnutrition. So this was the inspiration for thinking about, can we come up with some kind of classification system um, inspired by the Waterloo classification that equally helps us to deal practically with the, the other end, the other complex phenomenon, which is obesity. So this was our starting point. And we thought, well, what would a classification scheme for obesity potentially look like? If we go back to thinking about um, a model like the Waterloo classification that takes both past uh, risk into account, so those that are stunted, there's evidence that there's, there are past um, nutritional insults, and the wasting represents the present. So we were thinking about conditioning versus intervention factors and what kinds of risk profiles um, that generates. So for someone who is um, positive for both, meaning no identifiable risk either in their early life characteristics or in their, um, in their current um, activity and health profiles, um, we, we call that the low risk group, and anyone who is overweight or obese in that category, we think, well, we don't really know. There's not an obvious, um, not an obvious risk, so perhaps it's something underlying, perhaps it's something clinical that we don't have the tools to really assess what's driving it. For someone who is conditioning factor negative but intervention positive, these are people who perhaps um, experience some kind of nutritional stress early in life or growth. Um, perhaps had an earlier adiposity rebound, which tends to track towards um, higher obesity later in life. Uh, so these are people who, their risk is basically from things in the past. So there may be some scope for intervention, but less so than this group here, who are, are all right in terms of their, fast, their past factors, but their intervention factors, so the things that can be changed now, at the moment have them at risk. So good news for these people, those are the factors that are in the present, hopefully we can do something about them. And then the fourth box on this matrix are going to be the people who are at increased risk from both their past factors and their present factors. And what we really want to know um, is, number one, is this group of people, are they people who are already going to be exhibiting larger body size early in life? Um, or, potentially, are we going to be able to identify a big section of the population that um, hits the at-risk mark for both some of their past and current risk factors, but at the moment are showing still normal body size? Might this be the group that crosses over later into adulthood, goes from being of a, an average normal weight in childhood that goes to, towards obesity later in life? So this is what we want to test. We want to really see uh, the differences between these groups, and particularly the high-risk group in comparison to the low-risk group. Okay, so steps that we needed to take towards developing this model. We need to think about which candidate variables from the foresight obesity systems map we would use. We obviously can't use all 108 of them. We can't even use all 20 of them. So we need to think about which of those factors are measurable and which are age appropriate for whichever age of model we're trying to build. 
we need to find some data sets that allow us to test it. Um, fortunately, we are very rich in good longitudinal data sets in this country, so I'll, um, I'll talk about the ones that we have actually drawn on for this analysis in a minute. Um, within those data sets, once they're identified, we need to see, okay, what kind of measures were actually collected? Do they serve as good proxies for those general variables in the foresight obesity system map? Once we've got all, the, all that information, we can construct the model, uh, think about what age we're building the model, uh, categorize individuals within those four different risk categories, and then assess their relative risk for um, obesity at later stages of their lives. So the data sources, sorry, the candidate variables from Foresight Obesity Systems Map that we chose for this model, uh, we wanted to make sure that we were encompassing both the past and the present factors, so we took two conditioning factors and two intervention factors that we felt we could uh, measure with reasonable proxies. The first one on the top there, appropriateness of embryonic and fetal growth, the proxy for this is birth weight. Um, if you are either a very low birth weight, so less than two and a half kilograms, or a very high birth weight, over four kilograms, that may suggest that your embryonic and fetal growth was not optimum. So that's something that we actually can measure, and that's data that is captured in a lot of these longitudinal data sets. The other conditioning factor, um, thinking about a model for school-aged children that we chose, is the um, quality and quantity of breastfeeding. Again, the data is readily available. There's been a lot of research looking into uh, the protective effect of breastfeeding towards um, reducing the likelihood of obesity later in life. Um, so we thought that one was a, a pretty good one to go for. In terms of our two intervention factors, we chose two different ones um, in, in different pathways um, and also reflecting quite different things. So this degree of innate activity in childhood I mentioned before, it's not just about recreational activity, but it's about is someone in the habit of being active? So it's, um, you know, are they likely to, um, are they likely to walk? Are they likely to do um, activity regularly rather than just in a very structured, one-off kind of environment? The other one that we chose is the furthest upstream intervention factor that we have out of this cluster, and that's parent modeling of activity. Uh, because not only should we be taking into account what the child, the person that we're assessing, is like, we also know, as anthropologists, that the social environment, the home life, is going to play a strong influence. We don't necessarily know the mechanism for that, we don't quite know how it works, but we have a pretty good feeling that parental modeling of activity is going to be quite important. Uh, this is the trickiest one in terms of um, choosing a measurable proxy within the data set. So what options do we have for various proxies? Uh, the data sets that I had available to me are two ongoing British birth cohort studies. We're very lucky in this country that we have um, these massive studies that are still going ahead um, with very good follow-up rates. Um, the one that's highlighted is the one that I've used for this analysis, which is the older of the two cohort studies that I have available. There's also a 1946 birth cohort study that, that is also ongoing, and we've been in touch with um, the research team who um, is in charge of that cohort study, but at the moment, those data are not available in the Economic and Social Data Service archive. So these are the data that I have at the moment. I've taken older of the two samples, and we have um, height and weight measurements all the way up until 50 years. Um, the 50-year data has just been released, and at this stage I can't compile it. So for this um, 
for this analysis, I've gone up to, um, the MI measures up to 41 years of age for this sample. So the, the, the population sample were all people born in a single week in March of 1958. So this was taken to be a nationally representative sample. Um, the sample size was over 17,000 at birth, and we're still following up with nearly 10,000. So this is, this is a very rich data set. The kinds of variables that are, that are collected include medical data, social data, information about educational attainment, life aspirations, huge data sets that, um, that give us a lot of scope for testing different proxies for these different risk factors. Um, I'll just go ahead and signal the 1970 British cohort study, that's going to be a next step. So in terms of um, testing if this kind of model works in another group besides just this 1958 um, cohort, we do have that data already available. So that will be the next cohort that we'll want to test the model for. So within the National Child Development Study, the kinds of proxies that were relevant for obesity at different ages, uh, I've listed them here. The ones that are in red are the ones that were actually chosen for this analysis. And the one that I want to point out, um, so we chose 11 years, mainly because this is when we started to get a lot of good data on things like activity, dietary preferences. So particularly for coming up with some proxies for those intervention factors, the present modifiable factors, we had a lot more to work with at age 11. So we chose that as our base year. Um, I mentioned that we're going to use birth weight, which we have from the birth data, and breastfeeding information, which was collected at age seven. So not ideal. Ideally, we would have had that measure um, closer to when they were actually being breastfed, so, but we, we'd have the mothers reporting on breastfeeding when the child was seven. We had their height and weight at age seven. At age 11, we have a range of their use of recreational facilities, also some information from teachers, so does the cohort member take part in, in sports outside of school? Um, so <coughs> the, the activity, the habitual level of activity risk factor is actually calculated from a composite of how often they did these various activities. The proxy for parent modeling of activity was the trickiest one. Um, there were a couple of questions in there, such as does the mother or father take the cohort member for walks and visits? But because that's quite a vague question and it was one, one question, and whether it's walks or visits might mean something different, um, I decided that probably wasn't quite getting at that general parent modeling of activity, which is what we're trying to represent from the foresight model. So instead, the proxy for parent modeling of activity is actually the mother and father's BMI because we do have their height and weight data at the collected at the point at which the child was 11. Um, so that um, potentially is, a, is a, um, a proxy that might be capturing more than just parent modeling of activity, and that's something we can discuss at the end of the conclusions. But um, I felt that was the best marker that we had from this data set to think about how parents might, might model activity. And of course we have their height and weight data for all ages and including into the adult pages. So the model that we ran was constructed for when the cohort were 11 years old, so that's their um, 1969 data or earlier. The conditioning factors were birth weight and breastfeeding, the intervention factors were parent modeling activity and child's habitual activity level. Um, the breastfeeding that's another one that, um, based on what was available in the data, there were a lot of people who reported no breastfeeding. Um, ideally, we might want to take into account 
breastfeeding duration, but the data that we had in this set didn't really allow us to tease out if duration was an issue. So for the purpose of this model, we considered your highest risk if you had no breastfeeding at all. Okay, just to give you a sense of where this cohort sits in relation to the, um, the national obesity prevalence data that I mentioned earlier from the Health Survey for England, uh, these data points are the obesity prevalence rates for this sample, so this 1958 birth cohort. And you can see that up until 1980, so that, that data points, um, 1981, when they were 23 years old, um, prevalence of obesity very low, all under 10%, in fact, all under 5%. But then we see the big jump start to happen between 1981 and 1991, and keep going on up and up. That's a 1999 data point. Um, similarly, with the chart that I presented earlier, somewhere between 1980 and 1990 is when we saw nationwide obesity prevalence rates really go up. Um, this, just for your reference, is the Health Survey for England obesity prevalence from 1993 to 2008. The lines up above are combined overweight, including obesity. So um, for both of these, the, um, the National Child Development Study cohort seems to be a little bit underneath the, the general population numbers from Health Survey for England. Um, not really. Sorry? Um, actually, that's from the total sample. So that's, that's an issue that, that National Child Development Study, of course, are at a single age. This is for the total population. So just, just a rough reference, but to say that this cohort also started to take off on the obesity prevalence at the same time that we see it happening across the country. Okay, so how many people were at risk within this sample? Um, the total target sample is 18,500 plus. Um, that also included people who were added to the sample to the cohort um, in from age seven and later. So those were people who immigrated into the UK and um, were happy to be born in the same week. Um, we had for those four different risk factors that we identified, we could compute a risk calculation for over 11,000 of them. So we've got a lot of people to work with. Hopefully, we're going to be able to tease out if there is any genuine difference in risk. So if you look across um, in terms of the numbers that we had for each of the factors, um, the one that I want to point out is uh, that I've already mentioned is the breastfeeding. So conditioning factor negative or intervention factor negative means that either one of the conditioning or either one of the intervention factors flagged as at risk. So looking at just the C negative or I negative score, you don't know if it was breastfeeding or birth weight or both. Um, so the numbers for conditioning factor is higher than the intervention factor because, as I mentioned, a lot of people had never been breastfed. So that was the, um, the most common risk category for a lot of people. But generally speaking, the other risk factors, um, anywhere from as low as the 12% of at least one parent obese in 1969 when the child was 11, um, excluding that breastfeeding, it's generally between 10 and 20% of that sample would be at risk for one of those factors. Okay, when we start looking at who is overweight or obese um, um, among those risk groups, um, just eyeballing, as the, the ones that I've highlighted here 
are these are the actual frequencies out of the sample, and for um, the case of obesity prevalence, I'll put the percentage in there. And so, just as a first pass, um, we seem to be seeing something different going on in terms of the obesity prevalence between the highest risk group and the lowest risk group. So, um, this at age for this measure at age 41, the highest risk group had a 25 percent obesity prevalence in comparison to a 13% prevalence out of the lowest group. Um, we've got, we have to be a bit careful because particularly with the obesity measures, up until they were 33 years old, the samples are pretty small. So we've got to be a bit careful in terms of how we interpret the results for obesity prevalence because up until that 1991 measure, not that many of the sample were actually in the obese category. Um, but particularly for these later two years, we're starting to get sample sizes that we can actually work with a bit. And there's something suggestive here that we seem to be seeing a lot more in the highest risk group becoming obese later in life. And keep in mind, this was their risk group at age 11 um, versus their obesity status at age 33 or age 41 years. So in order to try and test this statistically to see is there, any, is there anything meaningful going on, um, we're looking at relative risk um, or the odds ratio um, for becoming either overweight, including obese, or obese at various ages. And um, so for those who are, or some here who are very good on their stats, and I imagine others in the room who maybe haven't touched stats in a very long time, if ever, um, in terms of what the numbers actually mean, um, the odds ratio is basically the, it's, it's a comparison to the proportion of people who became either overweight, including obese, or obese um, within the reference sample. So the references are our low-risk group. So these are people who didn't score any negative risk on any of those four factors. Um, that was the, the biggest group among the sample. And so those are the ones that we would say, you know, those are pretty low risk. But of course, we see people becoming overweight and obese in that group as well. So is there any increased risk of becoming overweight or obese if you're in one of the higher risk or certainly the highest risk? category. And what do we see across the board? We're getting odds ratios of anywhere from 1.7 for overweight plus obese, overweight including obese at age 41, um, up to, you have to be quite careful of these, um, upwards of three and four. Now I say we need to be careful of these because these are for obese and remember that the sample sizes were very small in terms of numbers who were actually obese at those ages. But I think what's more convincing is that we see it across the board, at all ages, that highest risk category, you seem to be at least twice, you're, you're basically twice as likely to become obese if you're in the highest risk group versus the reference low risk group across the different ages. And particularly in these ages when we do actually have quite a bit of this sample becoming obese, um, that result still holds. What you may say, is that just reflecting the ones who are already larger body size anyway at age 11. We assess them for risk at age 11. Some people would have already been overweight by that age. Are we basically just seeing those same people track into obesity later in life? And so are we just capturing the risk at an early age where there's no actual predictive value? Well, in order to test this, we thought, well, we need to see if this kind of relative risk actually holds up for the people who weren't already overweight by the time that they were 11. So the results, for the relative risk um, for the filtered sample. So these are all the cohort members who were not already 
overweight. Um, and what you can see is that in that highest risk category, that relationship seems to be holding. There still seems to be a notable increase in relative risk across the different ages. Um, the A there is that it was approaching significance, but was not significant. Um, just to clarify, out of the 602 people who were in the high-risk group, there were four who were obese. So we're getting very small numbers there. Um, but again, looking at these, where we do actually have some numbers that we can work with a bit more, it seems like that relative risk is holding, even for those who would not have already been identified as at risk on the basis of their body size when they were 11 years old. So do we have something that is potentially predictive? Um, also, just to think about, um, is it useful to have a four-factor model versus, say, just doing the model against any one of these risk factors individually, or perhaps against the conditioning factors on their own or the acute factors on their own? Um, what we see is that for most of the individual factors, um, the relative risk is lower and also is the case for the cluster of conditioning versus intervention factors on their own. Um, the relative risk is lower for becoming obese. Like, so this was, um, in comparison, this is relative risk for obesity at age 41. So that's the number that we got out of the whole sample relative risk of 2.3. Um, if we look at just the condition factors or just the intervention factors, they don't suggest as strong an increase in risk. Um, same story for three of the individual factors, but the one that sticks out is having one or both parents obese. Um, I mentioned this before, um, don't quite know if that is because it may be that obesity in a parent is capturing multiple variables on the four-side obesity system map. It may be we're, we were using as a proxy for parent modeling of activity, it could be capturing genetic predisposition or something else. So we don't quite know why that one is, is sticking out, but individually that was the one factor that did, that did stick out. Um, but the story to take away is that either of these, if we think about past risk or present risk on their own, neither of them show the same level of relative risk for future obesity as the combined model does. So we think there's some value in this kind of multi-factorial ecological approach. So what are the implications um, from this from this model on this cohort, we saw that the model did correctly identify children who were at increased risk, including the ones who were not already overweight um, when they were assessed for risk at 11 years old. Uh, we did see the relative risk more strongly in the total sample, so that says to us that we probably were seeing some tracking of body size, so some of the ones who were higher risk were already overweight um, by the time they were 11 years old. Um, and as I just mentioned, the, the clustering of risk factors, the past versus the present risk factors on their own don't seem to predict the same increase of risk as the combined model. Limitations, of course, um, the proxies that we chose for the model had to be defined by the data that we had available. So um, we were limited in terms of which factors from the foresight obesity system map we could test um, on the basis of the data that we had. Um, so we'd like potentially to be able to test this in multiple data sets so that we can try out different proxies, um, different measures for those foresight obesity variables. Um, we also need to think about how to define at risk. So I mentioned that for breastfeeding, because of the fact that so many in this cohort were 
a no breastfeeding. Um, originally, I thought to include breastfed for one month or less because some of the current research suggests that duration of breastfeeding matters in terms of protection against um, later increased body size. But because of the sample, uh, the way that the sample looked, that pretty much would have captured everyone. So we weren't able to tease out um, with this sample if duration of breastfeeding matters. So we'd like to be able to test that in a different cohort with um, maybe the data being asked a bit differently, the, the question being asked a bit differently. So we need to test it at different stages. This was an 11-year-old model. Uh, potentially, we'd like to be able to come up with a model, say, at age five or six at school entry because we now have the National Child Measurement Program that's already collecting the anthropometry. So would this be a sensible age to try and develop an obesity risk prediction tool? Possibly. We haven't tested at that age yet, so that's one of our next steps. And so finally, I would welcome your suggestions and feedback in terms of uh, where we go next with this, how we continue to test it. Uh, we are in the process of identifying other data sets. I mentioned the 1970 British cohort study. Uh, there are some younger cohort studies, such as the um, Avon Longitudinal Study, the Millennium Cohort Study. Uh, within the obesity unit, we have access to data from Denmark and the US. So we're in the process of trying to find lots of data sets to potentially test this kind of model on. Uh, we also need to see if we get the same results for a different birth cohort. Was there something going on at this particular time, did, did those born in 1958 experience a transition between childhood and adulthood that was quite different from people who are in their early 20s today? Um, we don't know, so we need to run the, um, the model for different birth cohorts. We need to think about um, other intervention ages, so different models in terms of what would be a conditioning versus an intervention factor. And as always, we need to keep an eye on the current research to think about how we define um, what is a risk classification for the individual parameters in the model. So this is where we're at. It's been um, sitting on the shelf and undergoing lots of thinking and um, a first pass at um, what we think might have some real mileage in taking a more ecological, multi-factor approach towards predicting obesity, which as we know, it's complicated. So your suggestions are very welcome and thank you for listening.